Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. We're going surfing, Tyler. We're going out to California to talk to the executive director, the CEO of the premier, I think, uh, coastal advocacy organization, one of the key coastal advocacy organizations in America, the Surfrider Foundation. The Surfrider Foundation, Peter, is... You, you say one of the most important, it rises to the top. When you think about organi- an organization out there that is fighting for beach access, that is I- interested in the issues of water quality and basically creating a safe and healthy ocean environment, coastal environment for us all to enjoy into the future, the Surfrider Foundation, our brothers, our surfing brothers yeah. created this powerful organization and today we are just privileged to have the ceo of the organization here yeah we're going to be talking to dr chad nelson today who's been the ceo of the surfrider foundation for seven years now Uh, but he's been with surfrider for more than 16 years formally as the environmental director for the organization uh well trained for the position master's degree from Duke university uh, nicholas school of the environment his phd is from ucla in coastal economics and recreation whereas it is referred to as surfonomics i'm very interested oh i can't wait to talk in, about in, that in learning more about surfonomics the surfrider foundation founded in 1984 in malibu california a great origin story that I hope we get to hear a little about, about from uh, uh, from Chad. Uh, almost 200 chapters of the Surfrider Foundation exist, uh, mostly in America, but not exclusively. Uh, it's an incredibly powerful volunteer organization, more than 180,000 hours of volunteer commitment to ocean and coastal health in 1992. Uh, an almost 50,000 members in the Surfrider Foundation. So it's a powerful force and a progressive force and has really done uh, amazing things for the American shoreline. So I'm just digging the opportunity to talk to Dr. Chad Nelson uh, on this show. A lot of interesting things to cover here, Peter. We get to learn about Chad. We get to learn about the Surfrider Foundation. And then we get to think about the future and what the future of surfing and the future of beach going will look like uh, with climate change happening and sea level rise happening. So really looking forward to this conversation. But first, a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at lja.com. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Uh, Chad, welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast, and thanks for joining us from California. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, Thrilled to be here. Well, I hope we uh, did justice in the intro to the incredible power of the organization that you have been part of for 
most of your professional life. Uh, we'd love to learn more about about your background and your lead-in and interest in uh, coastal advocacy. Uh, could you share with our audience a little bit about your personal story and how you became the CEO of the Surfrider Foundation? I'm happy to do that. No, and I uh, thank you for the incredibly flattering intro. Um, I think the uh, the founders of Surfrider, who which we can get into, uh, really tapped into something special, and uh, I'm fortunate to be here leading it, but it's really a testament to sort of the tens of thousands of activists across the country that put in the hard yards every day to protect our coasts. So it really is a, a special organization uh, that I feel really fortunate to lead. Um, <clears throat> I grew up in Southern California in Laguna Beach, which is actually where I am now when I left and, and came back. Um, I'm the son of an ocean educator. My dad uh, taught marine biology for decades in schools and ran a summer camp called Ocean Adventure Camp. My brother and I grew up uh, in the ocean, swimming, surfing, fishing, uh, doing it all. I was an ocean lifeguard. My brother became a professional surfer, now runs a surf camp. So uh, I really feel so fortunate to have uh, basically brought, been brought up next to and in the ocean my entire life. Um, and I love it. I still, I surf this morning. Um, I'm still out there all the time. And uh, so for me, the opportunity to both make a career out of, uh, you know, engaging in the ocean, which I think is endlessly fascinating, uh, and give back to something that has given so much to me and to my family is sort of a dream come true. So um, it, you know, I feel really lucky that I was able to turn my passion into my profession. You know, they always, the cliche is, you know, go find the thing you love and you won't have to work another day. And I, I feel like I'm actually an example of someone who did that. Well, that's, a, I, I want to actually dive in a little bit more, Chad, and understand how you got there in a bit more detail because you you are a scientist. You have, uh, you're a highly educated uh, person. Um, but you also yeah. work for a an, on an advocacy organization with a uh, kind of a, a big altruistic purpose uh, that isn't just merely ivory tower stuff here. Like like there's some blood, sweat, and tears in the mission of the Surfrider Foundation. I, I'm wondering what came first for you in your life. Uh, were you an advocate first or a scientist first? Uh, gosh, that's a great question. Um, I guess I was sort of a scientist. First, um, you know, growing up with a, a father who taught marine science, you know, I was kind of always sort of, uh, you know, steeped in that uh, information. I was learning about buoyancy and density as a kid. Uh, you know, and I went to when I went to college, I was an undergrad at Brown University uh, and I studied geology, uh, you know, and I was kind of leaning towards focusing on the land. Um, and uh, I knew I wanted to get into environmental issues, I think partly because I watched the urbanization of Southern California impact the coasts in the ocean. Um, didn't like most college students. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And, you know, after college, I was trying to find a job that was meaningful to me. And I was, I actually, I did some work at the United States Geological Survey, the USGS doing geology. And that was fun, but I wanted to, I wanted that was more science, less advocacy, and I wanted to get involved in the environmental field. And actually, a 
a friend of my father, one of my mentors, a guy named John Earhart, um, suggested I check out this program at Duke University called the Coastal Environmental Management Program. And uh, this was like the early days of the internet, so I don't even know if I, I probably read about it in some like college book. I'm not even sure they had a website <laughs> at that point, but um, I, uh, I, I read the description of this program and the light went on. I was like, you mean I can combine my sort of passion for the ocean with my desire for protecting the environment and get a job? There's jobs out there for that? Uh, that was revelatory to me. And uh, so I applied to that program and, and got in. Um, and uh, it was a two-year master's program, science policy hybrid. So I was doing a little both. I was a grad student, so I was broke. So I came home to work for my dad's marine science summer camp to save some money and earn some dough. And uh, I volunteered actually that summer, 1995, at the Surfrider Foundation as a grad student intern uh, and fell in love with Surfrider. And, and so, you know, that was sort of where I was like, okay, there's the science that's really important. We need to make decisions that are sound, soundly based on science. But science needs to translate to policy if we want to get anything meaningfully done. Uh, the program at Duke was actually designed to help translate science into policy. Uh, and what I learned at Surfrider is that there's a third leg to the stool, which is the public. Yeah. Because politicians and policy doesn't happen unless people are advocating for it. Uh, or if they're not, somebody else is. And usually those don't have the public's interest in mind. Yeah, and, So and that's really what got me going. It's an incredible journey. The highly regarded program at Duke University Nicholas School of the Environment uh, is one of the premier policy and science uh, or, uh, institutes in America, I think, really well regarded. And then off to, to UCLA for your Ph.D. But what a great story to start with uh, Surfrider in 1995 as a volunteer and uh Work your way up, as they say, the old-fashioned way to the CEO from of your, intern. From intern to CEO. Yeah, uh, it's it's like it's the mailroom to CEO story. It's but a I, great in story. This case, it was a grad student intern working for free. <laughs> well, you know, in that journey, uh, you've obviously made a career choice and a personal choice to commit your uh, your your professional life to this organization what is it about Surfrider that has captivated you and and kept you there for oh this many years yeah you know um i always tell folks that you know i i'll i'll look for something else when it's no longer fun and it's no longer interesting um and it never ceased to to be either uh the, the work and the issues that we're tackling, whether it's plastic pollution in the ocean or beach access or climate change are um, complex and interesting and societally relevant. Uh, and so the work itself I find interesting and it, you know, for better or worse, the problems keep evolving. Um, and then really, I think, you know, we'll, we'll talk more about this. Surfrider is really this people-based organization. And so this vast network of incredible people who are out there in their communities volunteering extraordinary amount of times uh, time to to make the world a better place is is 
incredible. So just the, the, the people I've gotten to meet and to work with over the years uh, are are it's so enriching they're great people they're inspirational they're motivating they're inspiring so um you know i feel lucky to kind of be shoulder to shoulder with all these incredible volunteers out there so that too i mean i you know i I laugh i can almost go to any beach in america and like i I know someone who's local to that place through surfrider so what what a cool (laughs) thing that is very cool um and and i think let's talk about surfrider more because it really is uh, an interesting organization in the sense that it is a national, it's an international organization. It concerns itself with the idea of beaches and coasts and surfing and ma- maintaining and preserving these spaces. Uh, but, it, but the, the, so many of your members of these 50,000 people around the world, you know, are, picking up trash at their beach that it is truly their space that they are connected to. It is not an abstraction at all. It is the plastic straw on their beach. And I, I maybe to understand this best is to understand the history of the organization. Could you tell, t- take us back to the, the beginning and, and talk about uh, how the Surfrider foundation was founded and kind of how the organization took shape to the point where it is today. Sure. Yeah, uh, it is a good story. So the origin story for Surfrider is there were three guys in Malibu, um, a guy named Tom Pratt, who was sort of an environmentalist, uh, a guy named Lance Carson, who was a pro surfer, and a guy named Glenn Henning, which was who was really the the sort of the lead sort of founder, who was a surfer and a scientist at JPL, the Jet Propulsion Lab. Um, and those three guys were, were Malibu surfers in the 1980s. And Malibu, which has one of the most famous waves, you know, the home of Gidget, uh, one of the most famous and high-quality waves in the world, uh, was polluted. There was a wastewater treatment plant up the creek that makes Malibu that was only had partially treated wastewater, and it was dumping into the lagoon. And they'd breach the lagoon, sometimes in the middle of summer, and that polluted water would run out into the surf spot. And altering that sandbar also affected the shape of the wave negatively. Um, you know, and these guys had seen other surf spots around the United States, one in my backyard called Killer Dana, uh, that's now a boat harbor. So they'd seen surf spots lost and surfers and surfing weren't really getting uh, the credibility that they felt they deserved. Um, you know, at this time, surfers Spicoli was sort of the stereotype and surfers were perceived as being sort of, you know, dropout, burnout, stoners who didn't really contribute to society and therefore didn't deserve any respect. The other thing that happened, so there was that, the confluence of that and the LA Summer Olympics, which were in 1984, uh, where, you know, as we just witnessed this summer, you know, here is this global sporting event kind of using sports uh, to sort of represent all that's good in the world. And, you know, these athletes are on these pedestals and uh, are celebrated. Uh, and surfing was not, certainly was not perceived that way at all. The, the, the great sort of uh, roundabout to that story is that surfing this summer was in the Olympics for the first time. It was indeed. You know, all these years later, um, which shows how far surfing has come, um, you know, we probably played a, very small role in that but um 
So they wanted surfers to be respected and they wanted the issues surfers cared about to be heard and listened to, uh, you know, and so they founded Surfrider and started getting active uh, and started addressing those issues. Um, about nine years later, we took on uh, a pulp mill, paper pulp mill in Humboldt County up in Northern California. Uh, we had this incredible lawyer, Mark Massara, on the staff at the time. This was before my time. Um, and we won the second largest Clean Water Act lawsuit in U.S. history at the time. Incredible. Stopped that pulp mill from dumping its effluent into uh, the, the waters there, which is also a surf spot. That really put Surfrider on the map. And calls started coming in from all over the country and all over the world, uh, you know, surfers and coastal community members saying, what do I do? How do I get involved? I need your help. Uh, we've got this problem or that problem, you know, medical waste flowing on beaches in New Jersey, washing up on beaches in New Jersey, et cetera. And the folks in Surfrider at that time realized there's no way we can build an organization big enough, quickly enough to address all these issues. And that's why we started building chapters. He said, we don't know how to do it, we can't, but, but if you want to form a chapter, we can help you figure it out. And a really uh, important strategic early decision, uh, very successfully, I would say, the chapter. Yeah, model. no, the, yeah, you know, there were some folks involved with the Sierra Club who I think modeled it after sort of the Sierra Club model. And I agree with you. That model, the grassroots model is really powerful. Uh, you know, like you said, it's the issues are real to people. They're, they see them. Uh, they know the other people in their community who are impacted by them, whether it's a loss of a beach access or an inappropriate coastal development or a pollution issue or plastic on the beach. Uh, and they can also, it's at a, you know, community issues are at a scale they can actually, it's easy to get involved with. You can show up at your local city council meeting and make a difference. Uh, and so being able to act locally uh, is a really important, you know, advocacy avenue. Uh, and I think one of the things we've been able to do as we developed as an organization is we realized we could scale that local advocacy up to the state level. Uh, you know, we have 18 chapters in California, you know, 11 in Florida, five in Texas. And so we can work together at the state level. And then we can actually scale that up to the federal level. So um, we can really kind of zoom up scales and then even work internationally. We have affiliates uh, in Europe and Australia, Japan, Argentina, and Senegal. And so that enables us to, you know, scale up to that international level as well. Yeah, I, I like that you mentioned at the beginning, and I think this was an, an impression for many people uh, learning that the surfer community had developed an advocacy organization that that probably wasn't taken very seriously at the beginning uh, nope. because of how people perceive surfing. But the magic of it, of the organization, is the passion of people who, who recreate on the shoreline and how yep. important this emotional, personal connection is to people. Uh, surfing uh, is a really amazing community. I've met so many brilliant surfers and scientists and lawyers and advocates and professionals it doesn't surprise me that one of the founders worked at JPL. That seems consistent with what I've learned about the surfing community. But um, 
people overlook surfing as a, a recreational sport. Your your PhD at UCLA was in economics and, and recreation. Um, inform our audience a little bit about the magnitude of surfing as an enterprise uh, from an economic point of view. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think you're right. Uh, you know, I, even when I did my sort of dissertation research, which was in the like mid 2000s, um, surfing was still, you know, I think the image of the surfer maybe had improved just because it's become more mainstream. And like you said, there's doctors and lawyers and scientists and elected officials surfing. So it doesn't seem as sort of fringe maybe as it once did. But um, uh, the sport, I would argue, was still sort of invisible um, from a, certainly from an economic standpoint. Now, there's an industry built around it, clothing and fashion and all of that. But from a sort of recreational standpoint, it really wasn't well understood. Um, and I was actually working on a project in Puerto Rico uh, in, in the early 2000s, trying to set up a marine reserve around some Elkhorn coral reefs in a place called Rincon, Puerto Rico, that make one of the best sort of big wave surf spots, certainly in the Caribbean and in the Atlantic. Um, and we wanted to protect these coral reefs. And uh, at the time, there was a real tension between this idea of environmental protection, it's the age-old thing, it's the economy or it's the environment. And as we tried to protect the coral reefs and uh, the environment, this incredible marine ecosystem, we were told by the fishermen and by the coastal tourism development folks, you're gonna stifle our economic development. You know, they felt like they had to have the right to sort of destroy these things to, to, to you know, build their hotels and fish. and we brought in an economist named Linwood Pendleton, um, highly regarded academic. He was at Duke after I was there. He was the head economist for NOAA at one point, also a surfer. Uh, and he did this assessment of the, of the community in Rincon, Puerto Rico, not too surprisingly, found that um, coastal tourism and recreation, whether it was surfing or diving or snorkeling or beach going, was the economy. So by protecting these coral reefs in this great marine environment, they, were, they weren't going to hurt the economy. They were going to actually help preserve and build the economy. It was a game-changing little report he, we commissioned him to write, and it changed the attitude of that town, brought the fishermen around, brought the hotel developers around. And uh, for me, I watched that and saw the magic of this kind of idea of melding um, economics with environmental protection and better understanding those that dynamic um so then he after that he actually moved to ucla and recruited me to come um go do my uh doctorate there and that was kind of an easy choice i was like wow these are powerful tools i want to learn how to do that um so i started looking at surfing and there was no research on the economic values of surfing like zero we had you know people had studied the value of the appalachian trail beach going of, um, you know, whale watching, all kinds of things. And a lot of these are what they call um, non-market values. So these are things we can do that are free, that don't have a entry price. So, you know, if you want to go skiing in a ski resort, you gotta buy a ticket. It costs a hundred bucks to go skiing, 150 bucks or 200 bucks. And if you want to go surfing, you just walk down the beach and jump in the ocean. Right. Uh, but that doesn't mean it doesn't have a value. Um, and surf tourism uh, also brings in spending to communities. So 
I was like, all right, well, there's a lot of proven economic techniques to measure these things. They haven't been applied to surfing. I don't know why or how, but that's what I'm going to do. Uh, at the meantime, Trestles, an incredible surf spot and state park in Southern California was threatened by a six lane toll road that was going to sort of destroy the watershed and the park and impact the surf. And so I said, well, what a perfect place one of the most heavily used and best waves in, in the world to do this research. So I can, I can, you know, figure out what the economics surrounding this surf spot are and then actually apply it to uh, issue uh, directly. So that's what I did. And I, I interviewed about 1300 surfers that were going to trestles. These surfers were coming from, in some cases, you know, two hours away driving, you know, in the dark, to, to get to this surf spot um, because the quality of the waves were so good. And uh, when they came to San Clemente, that town, you know, they were uh, buying gas, they were buying breakfast, they were going to the local surf shop to buy a bar of wax or a wetsuit or maybe a new surfboard. Um, the average surfer was spending 40, uh, 40 bucks a day uh, per visit when they, when they visited San Clemente. 83% of those surfers came from out of town. So the surf spot is just a magnet. And uh, it brought about 300,000 surfers a year to the town. Wow. So, you know, you, you, it was contributing. We, I estimated between 8 and $13 million a year to the town of San Clemente, which was real money to the town. Uh, and all they had to do is keep the surf spot. And those, that, that money would keep flowing in, you know, year after year after year. And, you know, they're... They never thought about it. So when I went, you know, talked to the Chamber of Commerce and talked to the local tourism board, they were completely blown away. They, you know, they there was a bunch of surfers around town. There's a bunch. Of, they knew there was a bunch of surf shops. You know, there's a bunch of breakfast joints with surfboards in them, but they hadn't really, you know, done the math, so to speak. Uh, Unbelievable. Yeah, and it really proved that, you know, hey. This is, you know, these guys come year round too, right? They're not just there for 10 weeks in the summer. Uh, they come at all times of the day. Surfers are really avid to the average surfer I was measuring was surfing 100 times a year. Wow. So I think surfers are actually in the ocean more than any other recreational user group on the planet. Yeah. Well, and I think that that's one of the most interesting things about uh, this particular community is, uh, Peter, you were talking earlier about just how, I mean, let's just pause really fast and talk about what surfing is. You know, I, I'm not saying that you have to be a rocket scientist at JPL to surf, but you are actually <laughs> catching a wave. You are indeed. There's like frequencies involved and, and there's, there's deep connections with, not only the ocean, but the vibrations of the planet, man. The atmospheric sciences. They're all satellite guys now. They track weather patterns all over the planet. I mean, surfing is yep. amazing. And, and I, I, as we, in this aside, I also want to point out that surfing is not, well, it, I think it's safe to say that the Surfrider Foundation uh, is a progressive advocacy organization. I know people of all stripes that surf. I'm talking about political stripes now. I know conservatives yeah. that surf, and I know liberals that surf, and they all agree on, A, the majesty of a good ride, 
and they all agree on the importance of good beaches to surf on and good accommodations to make that happen. Because as you were saying, Chad, the uh, though there isn't a gate pass uh, on California beaches where you have to uh, buy a lift ticket, say if you were skiing, you just bring yeah. you go and park. Uh, the the experience is much more than that and it does involve buying things and transaction and it is you know california doing anything in california is going to cost you a little a little (laughs) a little coin that's just i think we all know that to be true yeah but um so i could understand i want so we you 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 sought out to go put uh a numeric value uh on surfing on this particular community now uh, this, I think, looking back on hindsight, this makes just a ton of sense. But how how did having that numeric value change the discussion um, around uh, in this particular instance of the toll road? How did it change the community discussion? Well, it it, it did a number of things. Um, you know, it definitely uh, you know certainly changed some minds in the city, the city of San Clemente, which was you know. They, they still ended up endorsing the project, but it definitely started to change the thinking about the value of this surf spot and the cost of losing it. So we were able to present them, you know, um, that side of the argument. The toll road folks were talking about the number of jobs and how that was going to infuse money into the economy. Well, now we had a counter argument that said, well, you're going to lose some too. And the, the one you're losing, you already have. The one they're talking about is hypothetical. Uh, and the road, you know, 15 years later, never happened. <laughs> so meanwhile, those those surfers are still down at the beach, maybe more of them than ever before. Um, and, and then the Coastal Commission, which was the sort of ultimate authority in permitting this, sort of in looking at the different um, elements of the natural resources that were going to be impacted and what the, the ramifications of that would be, you know, ultimately cited the research. So it was incorporated into the, the analysis and decision-making at the very end. Um, you know, and I, as you said, I think, you know, these, these, you know, outdoor recreation beaches and coastlines, they have a lot of values, right? There's like some, there's a, like a, a value, there's a moral value that these places should just exist. Uh, there's a, people have a spiritual connection and it's uh, great for mental health. Uh, it has recreational values, um, but it also has monetary values. So in my mind, the idea is being able to chalk up arguments across all of those different values. It, it helps you make as complete of an argument as possible to persuade the most amount of people that, uh, these places are worth protecting. Well, I think, uh, uh, Surfrider has a tremendous track record of ex- of success around the country in uh, protecting uh, surf spots. I think one of the key issues I wanted to ask you about is is coastal access. Um, yeah, and uh, there are battles of coastal access in uh, every coastal state. We follow them on Coastal News today. Uh, not just California, but in Florida, on the Texas coast, up in New Jersey. And others, a uh, in fact, a recent compelling decision by the California Coastal Commission to fine two RV park owners seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars for portraying uh, some of their RV park beaches as private. 
I mean, this yep. is a battle uh, that's really important along the American shoreline. Uh, give us an update on on where we are nationally uh, in terms of protecting the rights of the public to the shoreline, whether it's for surfing or other recreational activities. Yeah, you know, and it's, I, I want to make the point that, you know, although we've talked a lot about surfing and that's a, you know, a passion of mine and the research, you know, the, the organization is not only just for surfers, it's for everyone. And, um, you know, and the issues we work on are, are like you said, are, are also, also benefit sort of beach, the 180 million beachgoers that visit our beaches every, every you know, year in, in the United States. Uh, but yeah, the, you know, the access thing is really interesting because I, I often think of it as almost kind of like this, these unseen battles that are taking place. Um, you know, we're arguably the only organization that looks at these issues at a national level. Uh, a lot of the beach access fights are local, which makes sense because that's where, where the impacts are mostly felt. Um, but, you know, there's a constant uh, struggle that's been going on, you know, since the uh, passage of the, you know, the uh, Coastal Zone Management Act in the you know, late 70s, right. um, which is one of, one of the federal tools in the Coastal Act in California, which is a subset of that, that protect beach access. And, um, you know, I get it. People want to privatize the coast. It's some of the most valuable real estate on the planet. Uh, those people who own those uh, $14 million homes really want that stretch of beach in front of their house to be their own. Um, and so there's this constant tension between those who want to exclude everybody else from the beach and the people who live there, you know, who want to exclude them and the millions of us who, uh, who want to visit the beach uh, and it's as it's public, you know, the, the beach and our oceans are public commons. And so we have a right to access them. And this comes back to, you know, public trust doctrine, ancient yep. sort of Roman law about, you know, sharing these public spaces. And, um, and so, you know, those fights are being sort of waged constantly. Uh, and, you know, if you're a, a beach goer, you kind of, usually kind of find a place you like to go where you use Google Maps and you sort of follow your way to the beach and you, you do the best you can to get there, park and do all the rest. So it's not always apparent to people that beach access is, uh, you know, being gained or lost. And so, you know, we, we end up spending playing a lot of defense to, you know, try to maintain access at these, at these spots. And it's almost always a legal battle at yeah. some level. Does, does Surfrider have a uh, in-house legal team that uh, works on access or can tell us, uh, because it is, these things end up in the courts all the time. They're expensive uh, cases to, uh, to prosecute and to support. Uh, how do you do it legally? Uh, and, and do you have sort of a bank of expert beach access lawyers that you can call like a, yeah like we, like we yeah what's your seal team yeah i get that but like <laughs> we, we do we have the we do have the uh we have the ocean seal team no pun intended uh we uh we have a couple of lawyers on our staff who are excellent uh who help sort of manage our, our caseload and at any given time we have like 14 to 17 different active uh cases that we're working on um mostly involving beach access and sort of clean water act issues are, are most of them um 
we but the the seal team is uh we have this group called the legal issues committee and they're a collection of volunteer lawyers that uh that we meet with us regularly and advise us on our legal issues and help us with our strategy um and they are some of the uh best legal minds in the nation um some of them are at law schools <clears throat> you know they run the stanford environmental clinic um some of them are sort of uh dc policy experts who uh have with legal backgrounds um and some of them are just legal advocates and uh we we really do have some of the best and brightest in the uh in the country and uh they are sort of the brain trust and help advise us. Uh, and then we just, we have an incredible amount of um, pro bono legal help. So because we have a good track record, because we have these uh, esteemed advisors kind of ensuring that the cases we take and uh, our strategy is sound, we're able to attract um, great pro bono legal expertise. So most of the fights that we fight, we can do for, for minimal cost. Well, I I think that it's clear, ladies and gentlemen, you don't want to mess with this SEAL team, this legal uh, force that can, if you restrict the access of a, of a beach to some surfers, uh, the Surfrider Foundation might be coming after you. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a, we have a, we, we, you know, we took this guy, Vinod Kosla, a Bay Area venture capitalist who bought a piece of property in San Mateo up in the Bay Area, you know, all the way up to the Supreme Court uh, over an access issue at his property. Uh, and one, um, it was, you know, a few years back and it was, a, a he had, you know, he's a billionaire and he had, uh, all the resources in the world. And it was a case of, I think him underestimating a, a bunch of surfers. And, um, that was at a place called Martin's beach. Yes. You know, one of the very early, uh, next well podcast with Rob Nixon, one of your chapter, uh, presidents who was also a host of a show on the American Troiline podcast network did a show about Martin's speech in that very case. It was a fascinating story, an incredible battle, as you say, with someone with unlimited resources uh, to fight, to privatize a section of the California coast. Uh, Incredible work. Is there a, are there states or states that you feel that are the most progressive when it comes to public access to the shorelines? And are there states that are, the most problematic. Can you generalize who are the good actors and who are the bad actors out there? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. It's pretty complicated. Um, And for for a series of reasons, um, there are some states like Maine and Massachusetts and even Washington State where the legal boundary for the public beach is different and most in most states, it's mean high water, which kind of means that the uh, dry the wet sand or that swash zone or the high tide line and below is public. Uh, and in that case, um, you know, it, the, it usually means de facto the whole beach is available to folks. Um, and a lot of property owners give easements just so they don't have to deal with this very difficult to measure boundary. Um, and, and those states I mentioned, like Massachusetts, Maine, and uh, Washington, those tidelands or those low tide areas are actually can be owned privately. So those states are at like a structural disadvantage um, just because that lateral access, so the, that ability to move along the beach is so limited. Um, and then you have uh, states like Texas, 
in some of the low-lying states, like in the in the Carolinas, where they have like the Texas Open Beaches Act is one of the strongest um, sort of beach access laws in the in the land. But with sea level rise, we're watching that uh, you know the public beach go crashing into private property, and uh, the you know to date, even though they have this incredibly strong law. Uh, that they're not rolling that easement back with sea level rise, so the access is getting squeezed out, sort of de facto. Right. Um, which is uh, which is really unfortunate. You know, California actually has some of the strongest beach access laws. Um, you know, the Coastal Act is one of the strongest state coastal uh, laws in the nation, in the world, frankly. And we're also blessed with a relatively steep shoreline, so we don't. We're just not seeing the inundation that places like Texas and the Carolinas are seeing. Right. You know, let me, let me ask this question because when I think about the Surfrider foundation, uh, when I was growing up, uh, it seems like though, it seems like it, it's changed a little bit over the years. Uh, if, if I would argue for the better, but, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we're talking about here, for example, access issues, uh, the, the, the great team of, of legal advocates that will help out. Uh, that seems, strikes me as like a bit of playing whack-a-mole. You know, you're going after case-by-case issues, um, trying to uh, go sue, counter-sue or whatever, you know, the billionaire mm-hmm. who's trying to restrict access. Uh, those, that's, those fires will pop up and they need to be fought. Um but you mentioned climate change, sea level rise. Uh, the conditions on the shoreline are changing in real serious structural ways. Um, yeah. How, as, as the leader of Surfrider Foundation, how are you strategically adjusting the uh, objectives of the organization to kind of get ahead of some of these issues so that we're not buried by an endless, you know, endless paper cuts of access issues just being eroded away? Yeah, no, it's a, that's a great question and a great point. Uh, so one of, one of the uh, pillars that I uh, set up when I got hired as the, you know, CEO almost seven years ago was we need to move from being a reactive organization to a proactive organization, which is sort of exactly what you're asking. And, uh, you know, as I say, there'll always be people with bad ideas. So we'll be fighting defensive fights, you know, for time memorial. That's just part of the part of the game. But but that's also a, a losing strategy because uh, if we're just playing defense, you know, we're, we're never going to be able to keep up. Um, and so we have been shifting um, towards being more proactive. You know, one example is, you know, instead of just focusing on beach cleanups as a way of getting rid of plastic pollution, you know, we're now passing local and state, and we have a federal bill uh, focused on, you know, stopping single-use plastic pollution at the source to eliminate single-use plastics like bags and straws and foam and all these products. Um, And the same with sea level rise. Historically, you know, we've understood the dynamics of the beach and been fighting shoreline armoring, which we know... Uh, ultimately we'll end up with the loss of the beach for decades. But if we fight that project by project, uh, we're also going to lose. Um, so we've really kind of shifted gears and have become big advocates for coastal adaptation planning 
Um, I think we're working in sort of 30 different communities and uh, also at the state and federal level to really, um, you know, try to ensure that the funding is there uh, and that communities are getting proactive and thinking about what the next 75 years of, of their coastal, you know, ecosystems and development is going to look like. Um, and, you know, that's really challenging work, but the only way we're going to kind of, kind of get ahead of uh, these problems, I used to feel like, you know, man brought the problems to the coast, you know, and, and if we, we got out of our own way, we'd be fine. But now as a result of sea level rise, you know, the ocean is bringing those problems to us and we're going to have to adapt to them. You know, it's a, it's it's really a tremendous challenge, obviously, not just to Surfrider, but to communities all around the American shoreline. But one of the things that we've seen and follow along in Coastal News today is this this dichotomy that seems to be emerging these days in terms of shoreline response strategies. On the one hand, I've never seen more uh, coverage, more project planning that is based upon the notion of living shorelines or engineering mm-hmm. with nature. We're starting to see yep. a greater emphasis on on natural infrastructure, if we can use that term, as opposed to yep. hardened infrastructure. However, this year and in the last, uh, I would say in the last year, I have seen more significant armoring projects popping up in in federal and Corps of Engineers project planning, massive gate structures, significant mm-hmm. hardening proposals. We're talking about this in Miami. There is a proposal for substantial seawall development in Miami that is being rejected. But but yep. this this the power of the ocean is 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 scary and property is being affected and I'm starting to see this reemergence of hard structure engineering. From your standpoint as a CEO of uh, of the Surfrider Foundation, how are you seeing that balance play out and what do you expect over the next 2 or 3 years? in this balance between natural and hardened responses to sea level rise? Yeah, no, I, I think you bring up a big point. There's that massive kind of uh, project uh, proposed off of Texas. Uh, the yep. new governor of New York just yep. you know, endorsed this sort of like submerged breakwater concept to protect New York. Um, and so, you know, the other thing that, climate change is bringing, which we're witnessing every day, is uh, bigger, more frequent, and more powerful storms and hurricanes. You know, the the sort of uh, acceleration of Ida uh, and the flooding that it brought to New York. Uh, So, you know, I think the the knee-jerk reaction to these coastal hazards and coastal floods and coastal storms is to, to, you know, to build back stronger and to to armor, uh, and you know, this is one of the huge challenges that we face because we're largely a reactive society, whether we like it or not. You know, we knew we knew New Orleans was going to be flooded before Katrina for decades, and we didn't do anything about it until after it got flooded. And um, you know, so we tend to you know we we talk about the need to um, plan for disasters, and we usually wait till the disaster. To, to do the response and that's arguably the worst sadly thing. sadly true i think you're correct yeah and that's uh and so the political imperative then is to you know beat nature back uh 
and that usually means an engineering structure. So I think I do think that's one of the the really really big challenges. Um, and you know, that's why at least I feel like this this first phase of planning, um, you know, which should be relatively unthreatening, which is understanding what the hazards are, what the potential impacts are going to be, you know enables us to start planning about places. I mean, hey, look, there are places we're gonna armor. Hopefully it'll be some sort of, you know, living shoreline or, or something that has some sort of ecosystem values attached to it. But that's just the truth. You know, you, you're not gonna like retreat from Manhattan. Uh, Miami, nature may take care of itself. Cause I think even if they armor it, it's just gonna soak up through the interior of the state. It's, it's big, built on a big sponge essentially. Um, but, but, um, you know, so hopefully we can start making smart decisions and not these sort of overkill projects. You know, I also think these massive projects make great political sound bites because it sounds like you're responding to a big problem with a big solution, but that to actually implement them both in terms of the cost and the planning, um, I think makes them relatively unlikely to happen. And I hope during that time plan, we can get a little smarter about it and really think about the trade-offs we're gonna make, have to make between sort of the built environment and these urban places where we're gonna have to be sacrificial and other places where we just need to learn to adapt and move back. I mean, even in Holland where, you know, they've been armoring and pumping water out of the coast for, for centuries. They're now moving back because the cost of that is just exceeding the value of doing it. So, you know, I think we're, we're, we're going to have to make some really important choices about where we, we fight and sacrifice the sort of coastal health and other places where we just have to adapt. Yeah. It's a, it's going to be really, I think this is the challenge of our day. Uh, yeah. Chad, and you're right in the middle of it. And I'm going to ask you kind of an impossible question. This is like <laughs> a, I'm going to ask you one of those questions that's politically just, I think, going to be, I don't know, you, you won't have a hard time with it, but it, I'm acknowledging in the front, it's a little unfair. Because <laughs> uh, I have noticed that some of the advocacy organizations um, that deal in not only coastal issues, but other environmental issues, it seems to me are... Uh, one, I'm, I'm characterizing now, Chad. I'm not saying that this is Surfrider sure. at all, but it, it does seem to me that that there is a uh, that maybe it would be best for, like, for example, in Ventura County where I'm from, maybe it would be there's a major water crisis, and it mm -hmm. seems like you know this water crisis can be quote unquote solved in several different ways. There are all types of different t kinds of solutions. But I have noticed that the advocates seem to be wanting to push the community. <laughs> I'm, I'm, again, I'm characterizing, but I'm, I've watched that they seem to be, be wanting to push the community into a place of desperation. They don't want the community to figure this out, e figure it out easily. They want them to suffer the problem because these are complex problems. The way that we've solved, when I say solve the problem, I, some of these solutions are truly half-baked. They aren't holistic. Mm -hmm. They don't actually address our relationship with the environment the way these organizations want to see happen. And I think that they see this as an opportunity, see the water crisis in Ventura County as a little case study, as an opportunity to reframe 
that relationship with that particular space. And I'm wondering if, if this is why this is a hard question, but we are in a crucible here on the, on the coast. Uh, the seas yep. are there. Our development has moved right up to the line. And mm-hmm. that is a tension area. Is that advantageous for Surfrider to let that kind of fester for a while and get worse and worse and worse until ultimately maybe we, um, we as a society, uh, say, hey, we, we got to do something about our beaches. We got to do something about our access and we're going to invest in retreat even though it's expensive and it's the most valuable property we're going to, we, we value this differently because we're going to push ourselves there as opposed to us adapting early bending now, if you will, I'd say it's still early. Some might say it's a little late, <laughs> but, but you know, bending now and building, you know, the Ike Dyke, albeit a, uh, hardened structure is, is an expensive investment for the state of Texas, for the communities there in their own resiliency that's probably arguably a good thing too so uh chad let me throw that at you that's a lot but what what do you what do you think about that i mean i guess i kind of think we're already there uh you know we have sunny day flooding and and uh in miami they're trying to elevate the roads like 12 inches because they're it's already flooding and you know we've got um you know, I think we've the average we've averaged about eight inches of sea level rise in the last hundred years, and we're going to see three to five feet in the next fifty to one hundred years, and so it's rushing right at us. Um, so I think we're already at that point. My fear is that if we only respond to the disasters, it's going to be armoring, 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 and then you know New Jersey experienced this in the eighties before they started nourishing their beaches. Um, we're just going to find that our beaches are gone. Um, and you know, it's a major driver of tourism and recreation economy in America. It's obviously an important recreational place, but it's also an important habitat. You know, that, uh, that coastal zone is a great carbon sink, whether it's wetlands or mangroves or seagrasses. And, um, so I'd hate to see us because I think if we wait the knee jerk reaction, you know, in California, you can get an emergency permit to put in a seawall without any real environmental review. So uh, that could backfire on us. Yep. Uh, since you mentioned Ventura, I got to say, you know, one of the best coastal retreat, coastal adaptation plans in America is right there at Surfers Point, project that Surfighter helped lead where they moved the county fair parking ground, parking lot, parking area back, replanted dune, beach dunes and sort of restored the beach with sand and cobble. And it's beautiful. Uh, and a very highly functioning beach with a surf spot. Uh, it's a great example of what we can do. We set our minds to it. And if you walk about 300 yards south of there, you get the little boardwalk that's armored. That's once again falling into the ocean. Uh, it's a it's a case study on on sort of the two one of the two of the choices we can make in terms of what we want our coastlines to look like. Definitely, and I have to say. Uh, Peter and I have actually both visited that site and it really is. It really is a beautiful, much more beautiful point now than it used to be uh, when it was more built up. And I mean, I grew up with it. What's so interesting, Chad, is uh, being a Ventura boy uh, growing up in that area. You know, the Ventura shoreline was not a pristine shoreline uh, for most of my life. You know, when I, I, the more Mm -hmm. I learn about the area, it was very industrial 
waterfront. Uh, Peter, we know yep. about the oil and gas history there, just filling up mm-hmm. tankers for World War II off that. You know, there are stories of like, you know, there were tires in the water and old 55-gallon dr- oil drums and stuff just thrown into the water there. That's basically... And and that was the invite. Despite that, or in spite of that, the surfers were out there. It still was beautiful. It still had a really profound uh, impact and connection. I mean, C Street is a legendary Southern yep. California surf spot, and yep. and now is home to this uh, retreat project, which is like this new resurrection of. Uh, a rewilding of this delta system there that could could not be more far. We it, we've come a long way there in Ventura yeah. uh, over over the past you know eighty years. It's pretty cool. No, I, I mean that is the sort of uh, you know optimism uh, and and truth that we need. Uh, Huntington Beach also. There's pictures of Huntington Beach in the uh, 1920s, and it's unrecognizable. It's a wall to wall you know, oil platforms and oil derricks. It, it's an industrial wasteland and, and they restored it. You go down to Huntington Beach now and it's, you know, this beautiful bluff line park with people on the beach and surfers out in the water and people swimming. And um, it goes to show you that, you know, not only do we have to adapt, but we have a history of, of restoring our coastlines uh, to real benefit. You know, it's, it's that we just need to do more of that. <laughs> Well, it takes horsepower, it takes money and organization. Uh, you are leading one of the premier, uh, I think, advocacy organizations on the issues that we're talking about. Uh, recreational access, public access, uh, shoreline armoring, all of these are in the heart and soul of the Surfrider agenda. Um, when you're uh, thinking about the future, uh, Chad, where, where does Surfrider need to go? Uh, from an issue standpoint or from an organizational standpoint uh, to remain effective? And and how can folks who are interested in contributing as volunteers or members, uh, how can they work with you and your organization? Great questions. Um, we, we're actually in the middle of a strategic planning process um, right now. So we're thinking a lot about, you know, what is the next five 10 and 20 years look like for Surfrider, um, you know, and, you know, we, we're set, we've set our sights at eliminating all sort of single base, single use consumer based plastics by 2035, um, you know, and we want to see every state in the country have a sound coastal adaptation plan as well. Hmm. Um, and so some pretty lofty goals um, and, to get there, we are going to, uh, it's, you know, our theory of change is that grassroots advocacy and people power can get the job done. And we've seen that over and over again. And every time we have uh, enough resources and enough people involved, we can win no, no matter how big the challenge. And so uh, we need more chapters out in our network. We need more staff supporting those chapters and helping them uh, wage campaigns. And we need more members, you know, 50,000 members sounds like a lot in some respects, you know, there, there's 3 million surfers and 180 million people go to the beach every year. If we, if we got 10% of either of those, 
you know, we, we would be a national force to be reckoned with. So, you know, I'd love to see our, our membership numbers grow from 50,000 to 100,000, you know, to hundreds of thousands. Um, and that would create the sort of political muscle to uh, get all these things we want done, done. And uh, I think there's enough people out there who live yeah. in coastal communities or visit them and love the beach and love the ocean that, uh, you know, they should join us. It's 25 bucks a year. It's your Starbucks coffee budget for a week. Right. Uh, you know, so I encourage people to, to join the Surfrider Foundation. Then go to our website, surfrider.org, and, and join as a member. Uh, and, uh, and then if they live, uh, you know, in a coastal community, we've got these 81 chapters out there. Uh, that are doing work, like you said, we roll up our sleeves and we clean beaches and we get involved with local advocacy every day. So if they really want to make something happen, our chapters are doing that day in and day out. We've got 117 high school and college clubs in our network all across the country. So even if they're a student, uh, there's an opportunity to get involved too. So, you know, membership and volunteer hours, uh, you, we really can get a tremendous amount of uh, good for our ocean waves and beaches done with those two things. Absolutely well said. And uh, we encourage folks to take, to get off your butt and join uh, Surfrider really, really is a high quality organization. We're thrilled every time we can have uh, somebody from Surfrider on the podcast to talk about the issues. It's an organization that's dedicated, highly professional and super effective uh horsepower is what it's all about uh ladies and gentlemen it is dr chad nelson he is the ceo of the surf rider foundation and uh one of the great coastal professionals on the american shoreline and chad we really thank you for taking time to sh- share the story of surf rider with our audience on the american shoreline podcast and, uh,